My name is Jack Heinemann, I'm Professor of Molecular Biology and Genetics at the University of Canterbury. And I think it's quite fitting that raising the bar comes from New York because the president who there is the equivalent of our vice chancellor of New York University said, a great university is a great local university. And I'm proud to say that I think the University of Canterbury is a great local university. Now, um, it's, it's a doomsday talk, but I don't want you all to be sad, right? Um, you have eternity to be sad. So let's, let's not rush there, but uh, the theme will be sobering, I think. Um, now, in my, in my upper level molecular biology class, I start them out with a murder mystery. They have to, they have to solve a murder. And, and one of my uh, suspects in this murder is uh, someone who gives the victim a bottle of gossipium, an extract from cotton. And she gives that person the gossipium because the victim is suffering from morning sickness. And the victim is also the mistress of the suspect's husband. Now that's not a big problem for this suspect, but she doesn't want her hopefully soon also to be deceased husband having to split his will with this new baby. So she gives gossipium to the victim because gossipium masks the symptoms of morning sickness. So in a way it's a cure, but it's not indicated for pregnant women because it also causes abortions. Now that scenario possibly came to me as a result of having, my wife and I having visited a comedian in Madison, Wisconsin about 20 years ago. And he was talking about how when you get a medicine and you, and you read the label, it tells you the side effects. And, and he said the side effects are always really similar to the condition you're trying to treat. Now, for example, a flu vaccine can cause fever and body aches, right? Or hemorrhoidal cream may cause itching. <laughs> now, we have these drugs, antibiotics, that have been wonderful. They've been life-saving and life-prolonging. They make it much easier for us to live a comfortable life. So wouldn't it be sort of an irony if a side effect of the antibiotic was that it was also leading our species to extinction? Now, I'm not suggesting that antibiotics alone will achieve this, but it's just the beginning of my talk. All right. <laughs> so I want to talk to you about doomsday scenarios that are perhaps less in your conscience, that you, that, you, that you hear about less frequently, that parliament doesn't declare emergencies for. And those types of doomsdays, however, can be just as threatening to us as the ones we do hear about. So on your tables, I've given you uh, a little handout, and that handout shows you uh, 
what are called the planetary boundaries. And we're going to come back to what uh, these planetary boundaries mean. But before we go any further, I think it's really important that we, that we start at a place where we all agree. Now, it'll be completely okay for us to disagree. This is a safe space. You can disagree here, but not just now, okay? Now we're gonna find a place where at least maybe most of us can agree. So I have a, a few questions and I'm going to need you to vote one way or another with your feet. Now what I didn't anticipate is that we, we had standing room only. Um, so you're going to have to, if I ask you to make your opinion known, do something other than just stand, um, unless you're already in a place that you're sitting. So I'm gonna just ask you to move into the room or dance or, or something if you disagree with some of the things I'm about to say. In my hand is an inflated globe, a picture of the planet Earth. Now, can we all agree that this is some place that we're from? Yes. Anybody disagree, please make yourself known to us. In 1982, I saw David Bowie in concert. Yes. And it was at, it was in Chicago, a stadium that had, of course, more people in it than all of Littleton. And it was during his dark period, you know, the one where he was doing coffee ads and let's dance. Ugh. All right. But what he did do well were a lot of his old songs. And he took a great big inflatable earth and he kicked it into the audience. <laughs> That's it. That was the whole, whole gag there. Okay. <laughs> all right. So we all agree that we're from earth. And um, I think the next level would be, do we agree that we'd like to continue living on earth and we would like to have an earth in which people can continue to live. Anybody disagree with that? Once again, it's okay to disagree. If you feel like this is what you want to do. All right. And does anybody disagree that antibiotics have been a good thing? That they've been useful for treating sick people? and useful for helping us to get other kinds of medical interventions, such as surgery, bone surgeries, hip and knee replacements, where otherwise we would be at a serious risk of infection. Does anybody disagree that antibiotics have been a good thing? Okay. I obviously made my questions too easy. All right. So we're in a place right now where everybody as far as I can tell, unless there's someone very, very shy, agrees. So I'm now going to change the nature of the question. Now what I want you to tell me is, if you have ever been hospitalized or taken antibiotics. Okay, let me flip it. 
Have you never been hospitalized or never taken antibiotics? So as you can see looking around the room, a very tiny minority have never been hospitalized or taken antibiotic that they know about anyway, right? Um, and that's about the frequency of random mutants. No, it's not. <laughs> I think that probably was you know, radiation-induced mutation to get to this frequency. All right. Uh, now, those of you who have been to a hospital and or taken antibiotics, you are the ones here who can tell me. You are the ones who survived. <laughs> Antibiotic resistance, that is the microorganisms that cause disease in people who are now no longer responsive to antibiotics as a treatment, are estimated to kill on the order of 1.3 million people a year worldwide. It's going to go up to exceed cancer death rates by 2050, an estimated 10 plus million per year worldwide. Currently, among those 1.3 million people who are dying from resistance, so make this clear, this is on top of those who are already still dying from microbial infections, an additional burden of 1.3 million deaths. Nearly 1 million of those 1.3 million come from the bacterium Escherichia coli. Does anybody know who that is? Yeah, okay, a few good, good shakes there. You, if you're perplexed about who E. coli is, you probably met him earlier today. Okay. Um, if you use a toilet and something solid is as a result of you using that toilet, you have met E. coli. So E. coli is a normal part of your gut. And you produce something on the range of 200 grams of E. coli a day. Now this is a lot because every E. coli weighs 10 to the minus 14 grams. That's one over a number with 14 zeros in it. So each one weighs very, very little. And you make 200 grams of it every day. So you should think about how much you're eating. <laughs> But also, you should think about the mass number of organisms that live within you and are part of our ecosystem as a result. And these organisms become part of our sewage. And increasingly, we're commoditizing and making use of that sewage for other purposes in our society, like fertilizers for agriculture. Now, among the survivors in this room, the antibiotic survivors and the hospitalized, in New Zealand, 4% of everyone who goes to hospital acquires an infection 
while they're in the hospital. So that's about one in 25 of us. If we go to hospital, we'll get an infection while we're there. And that's one of the worst places to get an infection because it's full of sick people who spread infections. And that's why they're there. 14% of those who get an infection in a hospital will be infected by an organism that's resistant to most or all clinical antibiotics. And that's New Zealand. That's not Africa or Asia. That is right here. Those are our statistics. And as dismal as those stats are, they're slightly better than many places in the world. But better isn't good enough. Now, in my molecular biology for beginners course, I do a little something called a great molecular biology pub quiz. And I do that in the lab. So I have to cross out pub because there's no eating or drinking in our labs. And I call it the lab quiz. But here, I'm in a pub. <laughs> and I have a quiz. And you should expect that from academics, because we like to assess things and get all judgy, right? <laughs> so to prepare for this quiz, what you should do is have something to write with. You can work with a friend or anyone else at your table. Right? You don't have to do this alone. So there's just a few simple rules for the quiz. The first part of this quiz has three questions. And you'll be able to see those questions, number one, two, and three, on one side of the paper when you get it. You and your team will have two minutes, and only two minutes, to answer all three questions. Later, I will tell you the answers to those questions. Now, even if your answer <laughs> Even if your answer is funnier than mine or more accurate, I'm still right. Okay, so that's the pub quiz rule. All right. Okay. Now I'm also going to read the questions out. All right. Okay. I'm going to read them all at once, and then you can study on your own. So, question number one. Which of the following ethnic groups is at greatest risk of acquiring an infection by an antibiotic-resistant bacteria while in hospital? New Zealand, European, Maori, Pacific peoples, Asian. Question number two. If confronted with the option to either eat shit or drink a glass of, glass of water from the Avon River in Christchurch, which would you choose? And question number three. <laughs> Maybe. Which of these things causes antibiotic resistance? And on the left, you have a list of things which you answer yes or no. Okay? The clock starts now. Okay. Time is up. Now, I know 
that you're on pins and needles about the answers, but we're not going to give out the answers just yet. Yeah? No? It's worth the wait. It's worth the wait. So we will have a part two in just a moment. Before we go to part two quiz, I just want to have you again look at those pieces of paper that I had distributed around the room earlier. And they're describing those planetary boundaries. What do you see as the boundaries that we have most transgressed? Yes, okay, so, so the altered nitrogen and phosphate flows, loss of biosphere integrity, which is biodiversity, and land systems changes. Those are the really big ones. Climate change is really small compared to those. And yet, how often do we sit around saying, what about those nitrogen and, and phosphorus flows, right? What about that? And how come we're not talking about freshwater? But one of the lessons here is that of those nine planetary boundaries, all are being stressed. And we are causing change on the planet faster than we ever have in our own evolutionary history. Because that's really what we do. We invent technologies. And technology is a way to make things happen faster and at larger scales. The outcome of what we do is to make change faster. And a symptom of that is our transgression of planetary boundaries. I mean, think about Archimedes. What was his technology? His technology was a big, long lever. And he said, if you give me a lever long enough, I can shift the Earth. Without his lever, Archimedes would have had to wait a long, long time for the Earth to shift on its own. With his lever, he could make it shift, or more likely make it shift, and when he wanted to. And that's what we do with our technologies. And we're a society that has a technological vision. It's not inseparable from our other ideologies, like our economic ideologies, like capitalism. We mix these things together. We often look to technology to be what saves us. We have a problem. We describe that problem often as some kind of vacancy in technology. Well, everyone's going hungry. It's because we haven't done enough to make plants produce food. So let's do that. For us, that technological solution often then becomes the basis for the next problem shift. So that, that is part of how our society works. And now what I want you to do is look at the second quiz. Questions four through six. Again, I will read them out. Number four, what are the two most important differences between the Texas-Louisiana border in the United States and Southland in New Zealand? Question five, what has the 2021 Dixie Forest Fire in Northern California in common with microwave popcorn? And question number six, what does Cyclone Gabriel flooding have in common with the rain that fell on Canterbury last Wednesday? 
Now, what we were talking about is that our society is embedded into a technological vision. It's technology that makes our things go faster. And this is the lesson for doomsday. Doomsday doesn't just happen, we create it. Every doomsday we're talking about is a doomsday that comes from us. So doomsday may not be planned, but it's never an accident. And that is how our technological vision comes to play with our choices in what visions we have. Not every culture has a technological vision. So different cultures may prize different possible futures, what we call imaginaries, of what we could be striving for. Now, when I say we make things go faster, let's have a look at antibiotics. Prior to the 1950s, the bacteria that caused disease in people were entirely susceptible to every clinically useful antibiotic we've invented since the 1950s. And now, there are species of those same pathogens who are resistant to all but one, and strains of them that are resistant to everyone we have. And that's in only 70 years. Antibiotics themselves are not only 70 years old. Antibiotics are probably several billion years old because they're natural products. We've tinkered with them, but largely they're natural products. And they've been around for billions of years. But until 1950, the bacteria that cause disease in us weren't resistant to those antibiotics. It's how fast we use them that made the change. It changed the pace of billions of years of evolution, condensing it down to only 70 years. Ciprofloxacin, which is still the wonder drug to treat E. coli. E. coli, which is the major cause of urinary tract infections, and sometimes will only respond to ciprofloxacin. Ciprofloxacin is a drug that is entirely of our own imagination. It is a chemical compound that has never existed on Earth, as far as we know. And it certainly hasn't existed as far as we could ever look. And yet, when it was introduced in the late 1980s, it only took five years for resistance to emerge in hospitals. E. coli learned to detoxify our best toxin, and it did so in only five years. E. coli is not going to go extinct. <laughs> it's definitely not going to go extinct, but what, we, what will go extinct on Earth are bacteria that are susceptible to antibiotics. And that is the difference in how we formulate our problems. Do we want no E. coli? Or do we want E. coli that will respond to our medicines so that we live longer and don't suffer as much? Now, we've addressed this kind of technological shift in a number of different ways. But the one I want to talk about is how antibiotic resistance evolved since we've begun to use them. Now, people like me will tell you antibiotic resistance is caused by our using antibiotics. And that's certainly true. Before we use them, like I said, 
these bacteria were all susceptible to the antibiotics. But that's not the whole story. Because during the same period of time that we invented the clinical antibiotic, the last 70, 80 years of getting the modern antibiotic into commercial and clinical use. During that same period of time, there's also been a general revolution in chemistry. We have changed the world, not just by creating antibiotics, but by creating hundreds of thousands of new chemical combinations. The chemical industry on earth is the second largest global industry. It has grown 50 fold since World War II. It's projected to grow another three times by 2050. We continue to produce more novel chemistry per person on earth than we have ever produced in the past. And we're accelerating that rate of discovery. There's an estimated 350,000 chemical compounds on the market that were invented since World War II. And almost none of them have been assessed, either for directly long-term human health effects, but in the context of this talk, for their effects on bacteria and the relationship they might have to antibiotic resistance. Let's take a step back to the 1920s. We had the Model T. The combustion engine was becoming a consumer uh, possibility. But it knocked. You know, when you're driving around, the engine knocked. That's kind of annoying. So somebody said, let's add lead. Let's add lead to its fuel. What did that cost? Well, the inventor said nothing because lead was safe. Right? So that's OK. But in 1980, in the US, lead became illegal to add to gasoline. And we can see in its absence what it cost. So 200,000 tons of lead per year were produced until 1980 from internal combustion engines being used in the United States. When they were removed, when lead was removed from fuel, it produced a health dividend estimated at 6 trillion US dollars. Removing lead improved health outcomes and the cost of the healthcare system by an estimated $6 trillion between 1980 and now. But that's not the whole story. It's thought that lead exposure to children caused a 50% reduction in the number of people with IQs over 130 in the US population and increased the number of people with IQs below 70 by 1.5 times. So lead simultaneously had health impacts and long-term cognitive costs to the society. And we only sort of learn that when we take it away in the absence of that technology, do we see more clearly the costs and benefits of it. Now with this industrial age and this chemical age came lots of chemical waste. We have huge repositories of chemical waste. 
And climate change stitches that threat together with all of our other threats. So climate change creates hurricanes and cyclones that are more vicious. It causes flooding to happen more frequently. Those floodwaters scour out the chemical waste pits. They flow through the industrial buildings that are storing these chemical wastes. And they redistribute it to our streets, our schools, our homes, and our gardens. So we encounter that when we encounter that water. But then, worse, the water goes away. And we have left is a light, fluffy sediment, which the winds pick up and deliver to our lungs. So that sediment is full of not just known new novel entities, chemical entities, but mixtures that occurred while they were in storage. <laughs> new inventions that we had nothing to do with, except that we put th these things together at concentrations under which they can react. Now, among, among the things we're breathing in are not just these chemical compounds, but also bacteria because these floods also overwhelm our sewage systems. And what's in our sewage system? E. coli. And who else is there? Inside our sewage system are also antibiotics. When you, somebody gives you an antibiotic, 80% of it is secreted through your bowels or urine, unchanged. And that's also true for all the animals we give antibiotics to. And we give more antibiotics to our food-producing animals than we give to people. 80% of the original clinical dose is still two times higher than necessary to treat an infection. So we are putting back into our waste system tremendous amounts of antibiotics and antibiotic-resistant bacteria. In one study, that was downwind, conducted downwind of a concentrated animal feeding operation. This is a type of agricultural setup where you have cattle, swine, or chickens. They have lots of them in the US. They're so big you can see them from space. We also have them, some of them, here in New Zealand. Downwind of one of these CAFOs, they measured antibiotic-resistant E. coli at a concentration of 1,200 bacteria per cubic meter. And that's under normal conditions. That's not after a flood, when the sewage systems have been overwhelmed. Now, among the chemicals that we produce in, in greatest quantity are plastics and pesticides. It's estimated that we use worldwide a billion kilograms of pesticide a year. So tremendous amounts of these two types of chemicals are produced, plastics and pesticides. Every one of you probably tonight has both of those on you. You either have it because you have some kind of clothing or other device like a phone that has plastic components but you also have it because you may have walked through a park on the way here. 
Pesticides aren't just used in farms. They're used in urban settings. You probably use them at home. If it were raining, you would have ingested some plastic and some pesticide when you walk down the street. Because we use these compounds, we, just, we produce so much of these compounds and dispose of so much that they come out in the rain. And guess what? Both of them cause antibiotic resistance. So in our own work, we expose bacteria to these kinds of industrial chemical compounds and ask what happens to antibiotic resistance. And what we find is that exposure to things like pesticides, the herbicide Roundup with glyphosate, 2,4-D or dicamba, these types of Herbicides can increase antibiotic resistance by up to 300-fold. And they keep those bacteria resistant even after you take the antibiotic away. So these simple models that we've developed that maybe we can restore the world to antibiotic susceptibility if we just stop using antibiotics. After all, it was our overuse of them that caused the resistance. Those could be wrong. It could mean that now that we have resistance, we can't back it off to an earlier setting unless we change multiple sins of our lives, including the many ways in which we expose them, the bacteria, to other toxic chemical compounds. Uh, how many of you eat ice cream? Yeah. Mayonnaise? Any mayonnaise likers? Okay, right. Mayonnaise and ice cream, among other processed foods, have certain chemicals in, com in common with pesticides, not just because there's residues, but on purpose. Pesticides have surfactants. These are formulation products that help the pesticide work, the active ingredient work. We use those same compounds in processed foods. I mean, if you had a little, you know, deep fried something, yeah, okay. Um, we call those emulsifiers when it's used in food. Emulsifiers are things like tween 80 or carboxymethylcellulose. Carboxymethylcellulose is used in ice cream and mayonnaise, and it causes resistance in E. coli. Tween 80 is used in the formulation for the coating on pills. So when you take a pill, you know, it's, it's, it's got a little colored coating usually, and that, that also delays its digestion or aids its digestion. And one of the pills that they coat with this formulation that includes tween 80 is the antibiotic ciprofloxacin. And tween 80 causes bacteria to be resistant to ciprofloxacin. <laughs> okay. So I started out this talk by saying, how could antibiotics be contributing to our own extinction. We have become dependent upon antibiotics in multiple ways. Our concentrated animal agriculture is dependent on antibiotics because we use antibiotics to keep them at concentrations that are so high, without antibiotics, they would be eliminated by disease. But it's not just animals. We spray fruit crops with antibiotics. So horticulture is also a contributor. 
Increasingly, we're using our waste system as fertilizer. It makes some sense to do this, but that system is also full of antibiotic-resistant bacteria and the kinds of compounds that select for antibiotic-resistant bacteria. And we depend on antibiotics for our own health. In the future, if we can't control infectious disease-causing organisms in hospitals, you may be denied a hip replacement, a knee replacement. Why? The pain might be terrible, but the calculation would be that the chances of you getting a life-threatening infection are too high and it can't be controlled. So the outcome of that equation is a denial of the types of surgeries that can improve our lives and make us more comfortable. So it's not that antibiotics themselves will cause our extinction. It's how we use antibiotics that will cause our extinction. And we have to think, too, about how we discover antibiotics. If the solution is going to be more antibiotics, then how many more antibiotics can we discover? If every antibiotic effectively goes extinct in only five years, and once you have resistance, it's almost irreversible, then we deny our future selves the use and benefits of that antibiotic every time we introduce a new one into the system we have now, which causes their loss. Worse, we deny future generations the benefits of our medicines by misusing them now. So all of this is tied up together. Climate change is an accelerant to already existing deep planetary divisions that we've created through, well, if not our plans, at least the outcomes of our actions. So the doomsday you don't know about is the one you came with tonight. We have to look deeply within ourselves to see how it is that we can choose between future solutions and avoidance of future problems. And new technologies often are not that pathless. Now it's time to end your anxiety over the answers to the quiz. All right. So are you ready? Do you have your answer sheets? Question number one. Which of the following ethnic groups is at greatest risk of acquiring an infection? Who do you think? We're all in this together. <laughs> Outcomes are different because of poverty and other reasons. But you are just as susceptible as anyone else in any other ethnic group of getting a hospital-inquired multi-drug resistant infection. Okay, if confronted with the option, so, so there's a gun to your head, all right? This is not, it's not an easy choice, um, and you have to make it. To either eat shit, or drink a glass of water from the Avon River, which would you choose? There's up to 50,000 E. coli per milliliter of Avon River water. So this is 500 milliliters in a regular drink. And the E. coli have, amongst those E. coli, are 5,000 who are resistant to ciprofloxacin, the first drug your doctor would give you. 
Might be the last drug, too, if you die before they figure it out. <laughs> and many of those 5,000 E. coli who are resistant to ciprofloxacin are resistant to concentrations 32 times higher than can be delivered in a clinic. We can't give you that much antibiotic because it would kill you. All right. Question three. Which of these things causes antibiotic resistance? I'll just go one by one. Penicillin? Yes. Yeah. Ciprofloxacin? Yes. Okay, you were listening. Mayonnaise? Yes. Patents? Yes. How do patents cause antibiotic resistance? Capitalism. <laughs> that's, that's, that's it. So we have devolved the responsibility for making medicines to the private sector. The private sector maximizes its return by getting the strictest intellectual property rights instrument it can. So it gets patents on those antibiotics. And the patents reward those who sell their technology at the highest rate while they have the temporary monopoly. If we had developed and commercialized antibiotics, under a different model, a different commercial model, without using patents, they may still work today. Penicillin was the best ever invented, discovered antibiotic, the most efficacious we've ever had, but we don't use it anymore. We don't use it anymore because, in part, we patented it and it was sold for every use from medicine to agriculture. Roundup. Yes. Okay. Antimicrobial soap. Yes. Absolutely. So stop using it because it's going into the waste stream. It does nothing for you. you, you you're, you're too dirty for it anyway. <laughs> and you probably don't wash your hands long enough to make use of it. So really all we're doing is flushing it down our waste system where it accumulates in the environment and selects antibiotic resistance. Horticulture? Yes. Good. Food packaging. Yes. <laughs> Not only is it plastic, which is good at forming biofilms, and those biofilms protect bacteria from the antibiotics, but the side chemicals that are in those plastic formulations can cause antibiotic resistance, and they can absorb antibiotics and release it back to, the, um, to those organisms. And heat. It turns out that heat causes a stress very similar to the stress caused by many antibiotics. So as our climate warms, we're also now, in addition to our chemical um, waste, creating one more ratchet that will keep bacteria resistant. All right. Question number four. What are the two most important differences between the Texas-Louisiana border in the United States and Southland in New Zealand? Here's the correct answer. It's the type of toxic waste that's accumulating. So there's massive buildups of petrochemicals in the Texas-Louisiana corridor, which were recirculated by, Har by Hurricane Harvey a few years ago, right? And in Southland, we have the aluminum smelter waste. So cyanides, fluorides, arsenic, okay. The second difference, only one of those two places has had a hurricane so far. Okay. Question five. What has the 2021 Dixie fire in Northern California in common with microwave popcorn? 
the same fire retardants are used. <laughs> yeah. So the same fire retardant mix that can be used in uh, forest fires and you breathe in, the PFASs, the forever chemicals, also line your microwave popcorn bag. Okay. And what does Cyclone Gabriel flooding have in common with the rain that fell in Canterbury last Wednesday? Both of them, regardless one being a torrential rain and one being a gentle rain, both of them caused involuntary exposures, inhalation and ingestion exposures to plastics and pesticides because they come out in the rain. You can't get away. Thanks for coming. <laughs>